And we've begun the second chapter, and the time we, in our time together, last time we studied these verses, but as for you, this is Titus chapter 2, verse 1, but as for you, speak the things which are fitting for sound doctrine. Older men are to be temperate, dignified, sensible, sound in faith, in love, in perseverance. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in their behavior, not malicious gossips, nor enslaved to much wine, teaching what is good, that they may encourage the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be sensible, pure, workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be dishonored. Likewise, urge the young men to be sensible. In all things, show yourself to be an example of good deeds with purity and doctrine, dignified, sound in speech, which is beyond reproach, in order that the opponent may be put to shame, having nothing bad to say about us. Urge bond slaves to be subject to their own masters in everything, to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith, that they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in every respect. So in Titus chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, it's clear that high ethical standards that follow the pattern of doctrine learned and doctrine lived are the responsibility not only of the church leadership, but the responsibility of every believer. In the first chapter of this letter, Paul stressed the responsibility of the leadership of the church to live what is taught. But that ideal does not stop with leadership. The highest of ethical standards are mandated by all those, or for all those, who go by the name of Christian. As we move on to the rest of the chapter, Paul will now give a validation for the instruction that he's given so far. He's given some pretty strong instruction. A pretty high ethical moral standard has been set. This is an ideal that, that is, is a responsibility of all of us, and now we find out why Paul would be so bold in calling us to that particular behavior. Why in the world would he do that? Well, it starts this way. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. This last Sunday, Dr. Leitner spoke about grace and the motivation of grace, the motivation that grace gives us to behave in a certain way. And while he didn't use this passage, this is one of those that he certainly could have used. We are called upon to behave in this way that Paul outlines in chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, because the grace of God has appeared to all, bringing, or, uh, has appeared bringing salvation to all men. The first little word is important in this sentence, the, in, in verse 11, the word for. This calls our attention back to the previous ten verses. And, and is, a, is Paul giving the reasoning behind what he has said before. It's almost, it almost could be understood as because. Or, or this is the reason why I'm demanding that you behave in this way. This word for introduces Paul's full theological reason for requiring the conduct in verses 1 through 10 and why con that conduct harmonizes with sound doctrine, which is what he told Titus to preach in verse 1. But as for you, speak the things which are fitting for sound doctrine. All of this goes together. In short, our conduct is a response to the grace of God. God has manifested his grace in his most simple, simplest terms, unmerited favor both in Jesus Christ and in the gospel. And this has resulted in two things, the possibility of salvation for all and actual salvation for all who believe in Jesus Christ. Now we, sh we, we should 
be able to stop right there. If we were objective in our thinking, we should be able to stop right there, and that should be enough motivation for us right there to live our lives every single day, every single second of our lives, sold out for Jesus Christ because he had grace upon us. If we understand what grace is, I think there were a few men in the, in the scriptures that understood what grace was very well. We, we think about David. David understood grace. David understood full well that he did not deserve the position that he enjoyed as the king of Israel, or as God's anointed. We look, at, we look at Peter in the New Testament. Peter understood grace. He probably understood grace as well as anybody, with, with the possible exception of the, of the final person that I'll bring up. Peter had failed as miserably as a person could fail. He knew he wasn't deserving of being the apostle to the Jews, to, to, lead, to, to lead the gospel message into the Jewish people. He knew that he wasn't worthy of that. He had denied his Lord Jesus Christ three times. He had fought like a warrior when Jesus Christ was being arrested. And then he cowered like a little child. When a servant girl asked him, weren't you one of those Galileans? He knew, he knew the meaning of unmerited favor. But perhaps the person that understood grace better than anybody of the scriptures was the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul understood grace, and he tells us all about it in his biographical sections. The Apostle Paul was a murderer of Christians before he came to Christ. In today's culture, in today's Christian economy... He would never be chosen to be a guest speaker at a church, much less leave the church because of his past, because of what happened before salvation. Oh, he understood grace. There is a behavior. Now, whether we like it or not, whether you like this or not, there is a behavior that is expected of you as a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is not legalism. That's shallow thinking. It's obedience. Christ, the Holy Spirit, the Father, through the Apostle Paul, has laid out this behavior that is expected of us. But that behavior is never expected of us to pay God back for what happened on the cross. That's not the point. You've missed the point entirely. You don't understand grace, if that's what you think. You don't pay God back for grace. You can't pay him back grace. In fact, back for grace. The debt is too large. The debt can never be paid back. That's not why we serve. Grace, in its most basic form, if, if you like simple definitions, is unmerited favor. If you like acronyms, G-R-A-C-E, God's riches at Christ's expense. If you prefer more, more full, more complete theological definitions, grace is all that God is free to do for you on the basis of the finished work of Christ on the cross. All three of those make the point. One's, one's rather simple, unmerited favor. One's, one's catchy, God's riches at Christ's expense. Remember, somebody had to pay. Somebody had to pay so that we can enjoy that. I, I personally prefer all that God is free to do for you on the basis of the finished work of Christ on the cross. But any way you look at it, grace is a beautiful word. And it's because God had grace on you and he had grace on me that Paul can be so bold and to give this list of things that are expected of us. Did you listen to the list as we went through it? That's a, that's a pretty high calling. I mean, older men, to be, to be temperate, dignified, sensible, sound in faith, and love and perseverance. Now, we run through that in no, no, no more than four to five seconds. But if we are to consider 
the ramifications of that. It's not that easy to be temperate, dignified in all circumstances. In Houston, on 45, <laughs> at 8 o'clock in the morning, no, it's, it's, not that, it's not that easy to be dignified. Sound in faith, sound in love, in perseverance. And what about the older women, the responsibilities that were given of them? Not to be malicious gossips, not to be enslaved to too much wine, to instruct the other women in that which is good, encouraging women to, to love their husband, to love their children, Here's, to be sensible. We're, you're, women, you're called upon to be sensible. I, I love this one. It's coming up. Uh, work, pure workers at home. Kind. Did you catch that one? I want to make. Women, you're called to be kind. <laughs> you're not getting that one. Kind. Write it down. I, I haven't seen enough people write that one down. Being subject to their own husbands. We won't spend a lot of time on that, but I know that there, there's going to have to be some motivation for that. Is, is the motivation that Christ died for you enough motivation for you to behave in a certain way that glorifies him? Is that enough, or do you need more? And if you need more, what more can there be? The hymn that we sang on Sunday said, said, What more can he say than to you he hath said? And I might paraphrase that and change it up just a little bit. What more can he do for you than he's already done? What is it you want? What are you looking for? Past what he's already done for you. Or, or maybe you've just forgotten. Maybe there is a reason why our Lord commanded us to remember him on a regular basis. To remember who he was and what he did. To remember the cross. Well, you, you get the point. In, in Greek, in the Greek text, the term has appeared actually stands at the beginning of the sentence. In, in Greek, they can, they can make the word order any way they want to. In English, it doesn't work out that way. Uh, we just don't speak that way. But in Greek, typically, if something was toward the beginning of a sentence, the Greek writer, even in secular Greek, wanted to emphasize that thought. So this word uh, has appeared, stands emphatically at the beginning. And it stresses the grace of God as a historical reality. It's already happened. We're recipients of grace today. We'll be recipients of God's grace tomorrow. But the, the big thing has already happened. And it's a historical event. The reference here is probably to Christ's entire earthly life, his birth, his death, his resurrection. The grace of God has appeared, but probably with emphasis on his death and resurrection. This word for appeared is, comes from a Greek word where we get the English word epiphany, an, an appearance. It means to become visible, to make an appearance, and conveys the image of grace suddenly breaking on the scene like the first rays of sunlight that come over the horizon when the sun comes up in the morning. And, and the clouds are in the distance. I love it when thunder clouds are in the distance and the sun comes up and the sun breaks through the darkness, reflects off the clouds, and it's a brilliant red. That's the epiphany of grace. Picture that. That, that was Jesus Christ coming on the scene like those lights shining up into the clouds and, and giving the brilliant color. That's what this verse emphasizes. For the grace of God has appeared. But what does it mean... To bring salvation to all men. That does seem to be the difficulty in this verse. One thing that it cannot mean. It cannot mean that because grace appeared, <coughs> all men will be saved. There's a growing sympathy 
the evangelical circles for the concept of universalism, which means that eventually all will get into heaven. Surely that'll be a, that would be a comforting concept for those who've lost loved ones, whose loved ones have died without accepting Jesus Christ. We, we might be comforted by that concept, but unfortunately it's not scriptural. And there are some pretty serious names that are starting to embrace universalism. One, one very well-known Christian author, and if you've read much um, Christian literature outside of our own circles, you would recognize this name immediately, a man who's a, an Englishman, an incredible scholar, still living as far as I know. Uh, he believes that after one dies, before they ever go to hell, if they're an unbeliever, before they ever go to hell, that Christ comes to them and says, hey, listen, would you like to reconsider? And guess what? Most of them are going to want to reconsider. See? I, I, hey, part of me wishes it were that way, but it totally contradicts the character of God. Not to mention God's self-revelation. It's not the way it works. That's not what the scriptures say. Another one, another well-known New Testament scholar, writer of commentaries, believes in a form of universalism in, uh, in which there just is no hell at all. So I wonder why Christ died. Well, they would, they would point to this verse. He came, his grace, his death, had benefits for all men. Well, we need to talk about that because this verse could be misunderstood. Scripturally, if we, if we look at what the Bible says, by virtue of his death on the cross, Jesus Christ renders all men savable. Did you hear that? He renders all men savable. And we call this, in theology, the doctrine of unlimited atonement. This doctrine states that as Christ suffered on the cross, he suffered not only for the sins of those who would one day believe, or if you prefer to, to call it the elect. He, not, he, did not only, he, he suffered for the sins of the elect, but he also suffered for the sins of everyone who's ever lived. That's called unlimited atonement in the scriptures that's the doctrinal position of our church unlimited atonement let's take just a few moments and see why we believe that we don't do this often i don't know if you go to the website and read the doctrinal statement if, if you've ever even read it maybe, maybe many of you just assume what it might say let's let's look at a couple passages the first one you don't have to look at you you'll, you've memorized it early in life for god so loved the world for God so loved the world, the, the cosmos, not the world of believers, not, not the world of, a, of, a, of an individual. If you, he so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should never perish but have everlasting life. But turn with me for just a few moments, and we'll do a, a short little sword drill. Perhaps you've not done this since you were in vacation Bible school, but it's about time you did it again. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 19 it reads this way, namely that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against him, against them, and he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. In Hebrews, the book of Hebrews, chapter 2, and verse 9, the text tells us, but... 
we do see him who has been made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus, because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that by the grace of God he might taste death, you see what the text says, for everyone. We don't just pull these doctrines from out from underneath our hat. There, there are verses that tell us that Christ died to make all men savable. Well, let's look at 1 John chapter 2, too. This is, this is perhaps one of the strongest passages. He's the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours alone, but for the whole world, John says. He's the satisfaction for our sins. And John says, but not for ours alone but for the sins of the whole world. Now, there's some of that they would have you understand. That is the world of the elect, the world of those who would believe. But that's not what it says. My friends who are coming to the, they would classify themselves as strong Calvinist or extreme Calvinist, typically love to take the high ground in, in academic circles. They want to take the high ground of scholarship. And most of them are real scholarly. But then they make some of the silliest mistakes. I would be embarrassed, frankly. I would be embarrassed to try to argue that position, that that, that, that world there means the world of the elect. I would be embarrassed at that. That's why Dallas Seminary is, while many are Calvinists that, that teach there, all, uh, sign a doctoral statement that they do believe in unlimited atonement. So we can save us, save ourselves that embarrassment. Look at Second Corinthians chapter five, back to that passage. Second Corinthians chapter five and verse fourteen. If you're inclined to write things down, these, these are passages that you might want to write down. For the love of Christ has for the love of Christ controls us, having concluded this, that one died for all. And therefore all died. And as Dr. Norm Geisler has said on occasion, if all doesn't mean all, then it doesn't mean anything at all. You know, it, the, words, the words either mean what they say, or let's skip it altogether. Why bother? Well, there are other passages that we don't have time to cover tonight, but First Timothy chapter 2, verse 6, Titus chapter 2, 11, our passage here, Romans chapter 5, verse 6. But I think that you get the point. So where in the world would people get the idea that Christ died only for those who would eventually believe, or, to put it another way, would die only for the elect. Well, there are a number of passages that emphasize that Christ died for a particular group of people, and not necessarily for everyone. There are passages that, that could be taken that way, and I want you to know what they are. As a good shepherd, Christ laid down his life for the sheep. We've already studied that in John chapter 10, verse 15. He died for the sheep. That's a particular group. That's not the whole world. Not everyone was included in the flock. Christ gave his life for the church, Acts 28, Ephesians 5. Well, that's, that's the church. So, wait a minute, does the Bible contradict itself in the scope of just these few verses? He died for the elect. That's according to Romans chapter 8, verses 32 through 33. Therefore, in one sense, the object of God's love are particular. There is a particular group. It's very clear from the scriptures, like Romans 1, 7, Romans 8, Romans 9, Colossians 3, 1 Thessalonians 1, and 2 Thessalonians 2. I'm so glad we were finished with Thessalonians. I, I always have a hard time. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, that, that God doesn't love everyone with the same love. That's clear. 
Let me, let me see if I can illustrate this this way. If we were to make this big circle representative of the state of Texas, and we were to make this little circle down here the city of Houston, and we were to say that everybody in the big circle is a Texan. By that, you should, if you know your geography. That's true. I mean, no, this is not a good map, but that's a true statement. So it's not a trick question. Somebody's looking like, I don't think I'm going to answer that yet. <laughs> not really sure where he's going with this. It's not hard. This is, this is supposed to be real easy. We're, see, we're taking a, t a hard concept, and we're going to make it easy. What about Houston? If we say everyone that's a resident of Houston is a Texan, at least theoretically. <laughs> yeah, that's a legitimate citizen of Houston is a Texan. Are those two things contradictory? No. You, everybody that, that is inside the boundaries of the state of Texas is a Texan. But also everybody that's in Houston is also a Texan. They're not contradictory. They're complementary. So, yes, Christ died for a particular group. Of course he did. The scriptures tell us that he did. But also, yes, he also died for a very general group. They are not contradictory. The scriptures affirm both. Let me put it to you this way. If we were to say Christ died for all who are in Texas, is it a contradiction then to say that Christ died for all who are in Houston? No. But if we said, now watch, this is, this is the mistake that's made theologically. If we said that Christ died only for the people in Houston, then it would be a contradiction to say that Christ died for all the people in Texas. But those passages don't say that. They, they emphasize the fact that Christ died for his sheep. And the reality is that if you don't accept the, the, the free gift of salvation, the, the, you don't accept the benefits of his death, then, then, then you're, you're, you're being foolish, and his death doesn't have the full benefit that it should have for you. But that doesn't mean that he didn't make the sacrifice. Here's where we need to be careful theologically. And I hope that you came tonight to, with a, a mind that wanted to learn some theology. Just because Christ died for all, just because he paid the penalty for all sinners on the cross, it does not follow that all are saved. Have you ever thought about that? Have you ever turned off the TV long enough to, to think about some theological issues? If Christ died for all, then why aren't all saved? It's a legitimate question. And some of these well-known scholars are starting to take a little different view than they used to. Well, if Christ died for all, then all must be saved. In fact, that's why strong Calvinists despise the doctrine of unlimited atonement, because they say it has to, necessarily, it has to lead to universalism. Well, maybe not. Maybe not so fast. Listen to the words of Lewis Barry Schaefer. It is confidently held by all Calvinists that the elect will, in God's time and way, everyone be saved. So far, understand it? The elect will, everyone be saved. And that the unregenerate believe only as they are enabled by the Spirit of God. You follow that? We can't come to Christ unless the Holy Spirit enables us to do that. But the question here is whether the sacrifice of Christ is the only divine instrumentality whereby God actually saves the elect, or whether that sacrifice is a divine work finished indeed, with regard to its scope and purpose, which renders all men savable, but applied in sovereign grace by the word of God and the Holy Spirit only when the individual believes. 
Certainly Christ's death of itself forgives no sinner, nor does it render unnecessary the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit. Now, that was written back in 1948, and he wrote in sentences that are probably too long for our soundbite uh, culture today. But what he's saying is that the death of Christ on the cross saves no one until the individual accepts that payment for themselves. He died to make salvation possible for all. But that death is of of little benefit to you until you receive it. Now, that's twice I've used the word full benefit and, and, and limited benefit. Let me explain what I mean by that. The death of Christ on the cross does have limited benefit even for those who don't trust him. And this is what I mean. It's, it's very limited benefit. It, w- it would be like this. Let's suppose you had a very wealthy uncle that uh, lived in Denver, Colorado, and passed away in Denver. And let's say you lived in Houston, and you were having a lot of trouble just paying your bills. And you find out through the reading of the will that this very wealthy uncle has left you a lot of money, millions of dollars, and has put it in a bank in Denver. And for you to be able to spend it, all you've got to do is go up to Denver, sign the papers, get the checkbook, and write a check. Now, there is some benefit just to knowing that, isn't there? Just, just It would comfort me just a little bit to know that, hey, I, I do have this bank account that's available to me if I'll just go up to Denver and sign on it. But in order to enjoy the full benefit of that blessing, you've got to get your tail up to Denver. Sign the papers at the bank and write the check, don't you? So while the, there is a benefit, wouldn't you agree with me that it's a very limited benefit? It's one that maybe can, can motivate us to, to have there is, there is a possible solution to this, but I've got to accept the solution before I can enjoy what theologians call the full benefit of the death of Christ on the cross. Would you turn that on back there, please? If we take a careful look at the scriptures, we could break this down this way. All men are born condemned because of Adam's sin that is transmitted to us. That's Romans chapter 5. For in Adam all die. He also says that in Corinthians. But particularly in Romans 5, 12 through 21, the great, the great section, one of the most theological sections and the most theological book in the New Testament, which, which tells us that it's because of the transgression of Adam that we all die. So we're born condemned. But then we all commit acts of personal sins that are consistent with that condemnation that we find ourselves in from the beginning. In order, actually demonstrating that we have fallen short of the glory of God. So first we're born condemned. Then we commit acts of personal sins that demonstrate that we're condemned. And then finally, if we were to die without ever trusting Christ, without ever accepting the benefits of his work, the full benefit of his work on the cross... We remain condemned, because according to John 3.18, because we have not trusted Jesus Christ. This is not as hard as sometimes it's made out to be. Jesus Christ died to render all men savable. But all men are not saved just because he died. I had a friend one time that thought that. This is a very practical issue, by the way. And if you don't run into people that think differently than you do, you're running in too tight of a circle. Or you're not talking to some of the people that you do run with. Because there are some really weird theological ideas out there. 
But I had a lady that went to our church one time. She's, um, she hasn't been to our church in many years, but actually since this conversation. But, but I remember talking about this one day at church, and she came out and said, I disagree with you. That's wrong. And she's the kind of person that would do that. <laughs> she's also the kind of person that would bring her grandbaby and allow the grandbaby to circle around the pulpit while I was preaching. Tell Henry, that's when Henry became the head of the usher committee. It was, that was his first duty. It was to do something about that. It was terrible that day. But, but it was that same day that she came and said, listen, listen, because Christ died, he said, I'm not, I'm not going to accept Jesus Christ. I don't have to. I said, why would you say that? And she said, because you just said that Christ died for everybody, which means he died for me. And if he died, then that means I'm saved. And I said, no, you missed the second part of it. In order, to, in order to receive the full benefit, you've got to accept him. You've got to trust him. You've got to place your faith in him. That's the human responsibility. The eternal penalty for sin, then, has been taken care of. But as A.W. Tozer said, if you choose to pay that penalty yourself, just understand, you're going to have to pay it forever. So I can't agree with John Stott that we're going to get another shot at it after we're dead. Right after we're dead, Christ is going to meet us and say, are you sure you don't want to trust me? You know what that does? It makes a farce out of everyone who has trusted him now. It makes a farce out of every martyr for Jesus Christ that said, I will not deny him. It makes a farce out of men like Polycarp, 86 years old, and who was told to recant back in the early part of the church. They pull him out. They say, listen, Polycarp, we don't want to kill you. He was beloved. He was a city father. But the Roman soldiers brought him out and said, we, we don't want to kill you. All you've got to do is just say, listen, I, I believe in other gods besides Jesus Christ. We'll let you have Christ. We just want you to say you believe in other gods as well. They tied him to the stake, and he didn't say anything. They tied his neck to the stake. He didn't say anything. They said, please recant. You know the only thing he said? He said, the Lord Jesus Christ has taken care of me these 80 and 6 years. Why would I deny him now? You know, we might kick dirt on and ignore and disrespect our veterans that have fought for us, that, that come home. Lord Jesus Christ doesn't do that. Remember what he does with Stephen? It's the only time in scriptures that I know of that it says this. He stood. Stephen looked up and saw Jesus Christ standing at the right hand of the Father, not seated. So the concept is this, that, that the eternal penalty for sin has been taken care of. But one has to receive that gift in order to, to appreciate the benefits. There is one other issue, though, and that is the question, if Christ paid the penalty for sin on the cross, then what's this deal with 1 John 1, 9? What are we doing confessing sin? And you see why people might say that. If Christ paid the penalty for sin, then why is sin still an issue? Sin shouldn't be an issue anymore. You've even heard it said, uh, Louis Frey Chaper said it one time, the issue is not sin anymore, the issue is Christ. Amen to that, absolutely. But it doesn't mean that sin is not an issue anymore. That would be foolish. 
Paul wasted a lot of time in the book of Romans explaining the whole situation if sin is no longer an issue. Well, what about believers who commit acts of personal sin after salvation? Yes, the penalty has been paid. You'll never pay it. You walk out of this room tonight and, and you unmercifully malign someone. Well, you're not going to go to hell for that if, if you've trusted Jesus Christ and thank God for it. I mean, seriously. But you will lose that close, intimate, personal fellowship you have with God. And why would you? Because even though God's righteousness and justice has, has been satisfied by the death of Christ on the cross, he's still holy. And you're going to lose a temporal fellowship, and that's the subject of 1 John. And that's why we've been given a remedy for believers. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I'm so appreciative that Dr. Leitner said Sunday morning, please don't use that as a salvation verse. That's a verse for believers. In context, it's a verse for believers. I need to wrap this up, so let me just say this. In order to be eternally saved, there's but one condition, that's faith. That's how we receive the gift. For a believer, in order to be restored to fellowship, there's but one condition that's given, and that's confession or acknowledging of the sin. But it's all undeserved, and that's the point. That's where we need to get back to as we close up this lesson. The point is that it's all undeserved. We didn't deserve salvation in the first place. You really think you deserved somehow for Christ to go to the cross and suffer in the way that he suffered for you? I hope not. Because if you do, you don't understand the first thing about grace. But let me challenge you even further. And this may challenge you. Do you think you deserved it a little bit more than the next person did? Well, maybe, let me ask you this. Do you, think, do you think you deserved to be saved a little bit more than Adolf Hitler did? I mean, after all, look at what he did. Pol Pot. If you want to go for the record, Joseph Stalin. 40 million of his own people. 5 million Ukrainians in one winter. A louse of a person. Horrible person. Weren't we just a little bit closer to salvation than Joseph Stalin was before we came to Christ? Well, those that are shaking your head no understand grace, because no, we weren't. We were just as abominable to God as Joseph Stalin was. Or you fill in the bank of who, who you think the worst person in the world was, and then put your name right beside theirs. That's grace. It's undeserved. It's God's riches at Christ's expense. It's all that... God is free to do for you on the basis of the finished work of Christ on the cross. Now, let me summarize by saying this. We already studied in 1 Timothy chapter 2, God desires all men to be saved. That's what he wants. That's his desired will. So if that's going to be a possibility, then he has to render all men savable, or the statement that he desires all men to be saved is a farce. If it's an impossibility, then it's a farce. Or God's not capable of doing what it is that he sets out to do, and that would be a blasphemy. So if God desires all men to be saved, but yet not all are saved, we have to assume, and I think it's reasonable to assume, that some reject the free offer. And God's a gentleman enough that he allows you to choose for him or against him. Our motivation for obedience to this prescribed behavior in the first part of this chapter, actually in the entire of the New Testament, but particularly in, in context in verses 1 through 10. Our motivation for the obedience to this prescribed behavior is an appreciation of the grace of God and the saving work of Christ, which makes that grace 
possible. You want to know why we ought to obey? Because we have a Savior that loved us so much that he died as our substitute. And we could do nothing about our lost estate. And we clean it up by using words like lost estate. But we were on our way to hell fast, forever. And there was only one person that could stand in the gap. And if he hadn't done it, there'd be no reason to meet tonight. But he did. We celebrate his birth in the month that we're about to approach. And I hope as we enjoy ourselves with the parties, and, and I love parties, and the fun and the food, and I love the food too. I love the presents. I love the Christmas tree stuff. I like the lights. I like the whole thing. But I hope as we enjoy that, that we'll keep the grace of God right straight in front of us. And if you do that, then you're going to have a great time as we celebrate his birth. But if your focus gets on the details, if our, if our focus gets off of Christ, off his incredible grace, it's going to be very difficult for you to behave in this way over the Christmas season. I think it's one of the most difficult times for you to behave as a Christian seems to work out that way. It's also the, the time of the highest suicide rates of the entire year. Why would that be? It's because people have gotten their focus off of the grace of God. Let us not do that. Would you pray with me? Father, we're appreciative, appreciative beyond words that you loved us so much that you sent your son to die for a substitute, as a substitute for us. Father, we pray that we would never forget that we were your enemies when that transaction occurred, when our Lord suffered, when he took that brutal beating, when he was nailed to the cross, when those evil men ridiculed him, and then most of all, when the skies became dark and you judged your son, and he screamed out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Father, let us never forget that we were your enemies when you did that for us, when he did that for us. And as we focus on the grace of God, may it be just a little easier for all of us to behave in a way that pleases you. You loved us so much. Father, help us through your Holy Spirit to return that love. And we'll ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.